basically every Sunday we try to just kind of talk to the people around us. And so if you like know somebody and you feel really comfortable with them, talk to them, but then invite someone else you don't know into your group. Okay, so you can meet someone new. And here's the question. What's been the most difficult group, club, um, or cult that you ever tried to get into? All right, one of my, one of the hardest groups I think to get into is like my childhood friendship group. Most of them are very exclusive people, even though I love them. They go against my core uh, strength finder of inclusion. And we have like the same 10 people in our hangouts, like for 15 years, Christmas, Easter, you know, and if you can't, you're not allowed to invite anyone, basically, even though I always want to. And they don't come out to my stuff because I invite like 200 people and they, they don't like that. Um, but then one day, this like new couple started coming. I've never seen like a new couple in our group before. So that was exciting. Um, another group I, I tried to join that was really hard was the basketball team. So I joined basketball in high school. My freshman year, I got cut first round. They gave me the whole Michael Jordan speech, you know. But then they had uh, like a second tryout that the head coach invited everyone back for. So I swear, there was like 250 kids trying to be ballers, right? And I was one of them. And I used to be tall in my Christian junior high and in my Asian church league. So, you know, I was like this height in eighth grade. So I was playing power forward. And right when I step into the court, it's like our point guard 6'1 freshman year, our shooting guard 6'2", and our center's like 6'5". I'm like, where am I, you know? And, um, but yeah, I made it back. I made it on the basketball team. I had to beat like we did like round robin with like like a hundred students and I had to beat everyone and then and then I sat on the bench for two years and then tore an ACL. Good times. So um, in your small groups of two or three, what is the most difficult group, team, club, or cult that you ever tried to get into? All right, we'll give you guys two minutes and then we'll come back up. Thanks for sharing. Hope you had a good time with the people around you. Um, it's not one of our normal dark questions, so that's, that's a nice, refreshing thing. As we go into this next year, we're going to be hanging out in the gospel, or not the gospel, in the book of Romans, and we're starting it off today, so this is a great time for you guys to show up, and I'm really praying for our church. I think um, when we first started a church that first year, it's kind of like having a baby where you're not sure if it's sleeping or dead, you know, like, I think that's how me and Nina will be. We're having a kid in two months, and I think every once, every hour or so, I'll be, like, poking it, be like, you're still good, still alive, like, checking its, closing its nose, so see if it will open its mouth to breathe, right, stuff like that, to see if things are alive, and I feel like um, when we first started Renew, the first year was like, hey, is this going to work? Like, is Renew going to keep going? Is it alive? Are we going to die financially or leadership or, or exhaust people? And now we're at year two, and there's just so much more stability that's come, right? And we're, we're discovering who we are. We're starting to run around, and, and we're, I'm, not, I'm not worried if this church is going to survive or not anymore. I'm not checking our pulse as much. Um, but I do feel like as a two-year-old, almost two years old, we're like this little toddler that's trying to grow in like 
like a hundred different ways. You know, we're learning how to walk. We're developing our 31st word. Um, we are um, trying to not poo ourselves as much, right? And so we're just trying to learn how to do life and how to grow in in every category. I, I think in worship, like our worship team met together, leaders, and we're just praying that we would continue to have this culture of worship that experiences God and and is vulnerable and is abandoned, that we would emote as we worship and desire to be touched by him and to go into his courts and to experience him as a community. And then my second prayer is um, us in God's word. So I always envisioned a church that worships like Bethel, but kind of teaches like MacArthur, you know, but not as extreme on either end. But, um, you know, just kind of like, we can worship uh, um, with just this abandonment and this this um, vitality, and um, and then when we go into God's word, that's thoughtful, that it's meticulous, that um, we just unpack it slowly and and steadily. And I think as a church, that's where I hope we go as a community, that we would go deeper into God's word, that we would understand the theology, that we wouldn't be swayed by every wind of doctrine, but that there would be this rootedness in what we believe. And so as we go through Romans as a community on Sundays, I hope it's not just something you kind of hear or, or you learn about, but also, as we preach, we want to teach you how to read the word. And that's why a big part of the way we teach at Renew is we go through verses kind of one at a time, chapters one at a time, because it, then it doesn't feel like a magic box of like, here's five random verses on the screen and what we think about them. You know, like that doesn't really teach us how to engage in the Bible intellectually. So as we go through the Bible kind of one chapter at a time, we're hoping that you not just learn what the book is about, but you learn how to read the word on your own. That's one of the best gifts that we could give you as a leadership team. And we hope that you would also immerse yourself in Romans throughout the week. So one of the ways we want to practice this, next slide, is um, I would love for us to, to go on Renew Bible. It's one of our, like, thousand Facebook groups. And um, we're just going to steadily work through little sections of Romans as a community. And so every morning, Emma's going to post a few verses. And I would love to engage and help us practice reading the Word of God um, kind of on our own, but also in dialogue, in asking questions, in conversations. And I'm going to be on there every day. And I would love to just kind of, you know, give you my reflection, hear about yours, and learn from your story and how it relates to God's Word in Romans. And then also, um, you know, understand and, and try to throw out questions to get us thinking. And so we hope that it will be an immersive experience, that we can hear about Romans on Sunday, but also walk through it in little pieces throughout the week. And lastly, we have our small groups. And so small groups is a great way for us, again, to come as a community around Scripture. And most of our small groups are going to walk through Romans and really try to understand how does this apply to our lives, right? We don't want to just understand it intellectually, but we want to have what we understand become part of who we are, become our lifestyle and our character, the way we do community. And that uh, a lot of that is going to happen in our small groups. So I hope that um, as we walk through Romans, there would be the sense of understanding the theology well, you know, going deep into God's word. Romans is 
the theological book. I mean, Paul kind of takes all these pieces of the Christian faith and places it into one system that is comprehensive and isn't just uh, disconnected categories, but there's this like um, kind of worldview you can take that is cohesive through Romans. And so we want to do that. And at the same time, we want to do it in community. And so another thing I want to encourage us to do as we kind of mature as a church is that we would bring our Bibles to church. Uh, for those of you who are visiting, don't feel like shamed or anything. Most of us don't have our Bibles on us. But if we can like practice that, and I bought like 20 Bibles, so I would love to give you your first Bible as a community. And I think it's, again, it's part of having the Word of God with us beyond Sundays, you know, and I've become good friends with a lot of Bibles where I've highlighted, I've taken notes, I know where everything is, but I don't bring it to church because then I lose my friends and they get really sad, you know, so I, I usually read off of the screen and hopefully if you're new, you can do that with us, but for those of you guys who are trying to mature in your faith, I would love for you to have your phones out, have your Bibles out, take notes on it, because then you know where to find it when, you, when you, you don't have me around, right, in your workplace, when you feel discouraged, when you're alone, that the Bible becomes something you know how to reach out and grab and read and understand, okay? If it's just a PowerPoint slide, then you kind of lose access to it. after. So that's what I'm encouraging us to do and to grow in as a community. Again, we're in Romans, and we're just going to go through uh, half of Romans chapter 1, kind of verse by verse, and I hope to show you some things in it. And this first half of uh, Romans chapter 1 is really like an introduction to the rest of Romans. So it covers the expanse of the rest of the book, and the sentences just feel really congested and dense. And so as we pick this apart, for some of you, you're like, oh, this is really basic. And I'd say, hey, just hang out with us for a year and we'll uh, go deeper into all of these different concepts. And for others of you, you're like, man, this is way beyond me. And I'd say, hang out with us for a year and we'll kind of slowly unpack a lot of these concepts. All right, let me pray for us as we go into God's word. Father, we just recognize today that we don't have much to offer. I don't have much to offer my brothers and sisters in this room. You know, like, they could listen to stand-up comedy on Netflix. There's much better motivational speakers than me. Um, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good storyteller, but we can all tell really great stories. I hope that why we've come today and what we hope to glean out of this time is a better understanding of your word. The same words that created the universe, uh, you've put on paper to create life in our families. Um, you've given us life through them eternally, life in our relationship with you and others. And I hope that there just be this hunger and thirst to really get what you're trying to say. You know, that that's why we're here. That's why we showed up, because we want you to speak to us through your word that's proven true and flawless and transforming and powerful. And so I pray that as we engage your word in this focused, maybe a little bit academic way, that it would resonate in our hearts, um, that it wouldn't just be my words, but your spirit, Lord, would take your truth into the heart of every man and woman in here, and you would create life um, in our hearts through your word this morning. We love you. Uh, we give you our attention and we desire for you to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart 
for the gospel of God. You know, Paul's one of the greatest Christian leaders and theologian of our time dash 2,000 years. And I just think about all the ways that I would introduce myself if I was Paul. Like, hi, Paul, you know, a chronic church planter. I'm going to write some scripture for y'all, you know, and um, probably the best, probably the smartest person in this room. I mean, he could go off on all of the accolades, all of the things, all of his accomplishments. But instead, he describes himself in this really simplistic way, a servant of Jesus Christ. In the Greek, it's, it's actually bondservant, and that had a lot of weight and meaning behind it. A bondservant is someone who starts as an indentured servant to a, a master or someone that they owe a debt to, but at the end of their time, they finish pay, paying off their debt, and so their boss or their master says, hey, you can leave now, but, there's, but a bondservant is saying, no, I want to be bonded to you. So even though I'm free to leave, I'm going to stay because I've become a part of your family, because I love you more than a master, but as a friend, as a leader. Um, and so they, the master then takes this bondservant, and he pierces the bondservant's ear, and for their lifetime, they become part of their master's home. And that's what Paul's saying. He said, not only am I a servant of the Lord, but I serve him freely, and I serve him with my life. And I serve him in, in, in my liberty. Then he says, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The translation for apostle is messenger, someone who's given a message to speak. And the gospel is the message, is good news. And because he's writing to Rome, all the Romans there have a really um, specific understanding of what it means to be a messenger of the gospel. Because at the time, the Roman Empire was taking over the known world, right? They had the greatest military force on earth, and they would just walk into different territories, countries, people's groups, and they would just demolish them and then make them into a territory of Rome. Their kingdom was spreading across Europe and parts of Africa and the Middle East. And during that time, after they conquered a people group and subdued them, they would then bring the gospel of Rome into that territory through a messenger. The messenger would walk into this new territory and say, we just, you are now a part of the Roman Empire, and this is good news. This is the gospel. Why is it good news? Because there's a new king, and there's a new rulership, and you guys will have aqueducts, you'll have city councils, you'll have education, we're going to teach you to be literate, you'll be prosperous, um, you'll have a new judicial system where you can't just be killed or punished or the guy with the biggest sword wins. No, you actually have human rights now. And you, because you're a Roman citizen, you're gonna, you get to go through the courts before you're prosecuted. And this was all really new concepts to these people. And the messenger is saying, it's good news. You have new rights. You have new freedom. You'll have new prosperity because... Roman, because of Roman rule, because this emperor has taken over your territory. And now Paul is using the same language, as, and he's saying there's another kingdom that's expanding, the kingdom of Jesus. You know, Jesus talks about his kingdom starting like a mustard seed, this really small seed that you could barely see, and then growing into a huge tree, and he's saying, my kingdom's going to be like that. It's going to start small, but it's going to invade the whole earth. 
But instead of conquering territory with swords, the gospel that Paul is proclaiming is going to conquer hearts with love. That from Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria to the ends of the earth will be people who hear about this gospel, hear about this Jesus who loves them, and gives Jesus their allegiance, gives Jesus their, um, their citizenship, and he's going to be king over them. And we see in Acts how the kingdom of God spreads across um, the known world. And Paul's saying, I'm a messenger of this other gospel for this other king called Jesus. And he calls us to do the same thing. He calls us apostles later in this passage. By the way, I, I didn't have that part of my sermon, and I dreamt about preaching that, and now I get to do it, which is really fun. All right. Uh, random, random factoid. Um, and then he starts describing the gospel. He does it focused on two things. First, he talks about Jesus as the cornerstone or the centerpiece of the gospel. Then he talks about the gospel in its power and what it does um, for those who receive it. It says, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture regarding his son as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He unpacks this like for five or six chapters uh, in the rest of Romans, but we're just going to do a skim over. And the first thing I want you to notice is chapter 2 where it says this gospel didn't, didn't just start with me having a grand idea. It didn't even start with Jesus coming to earth. It was promised beforehand by the prophets that throughout the Old Testament was this promise of a Messiah, was this promise of good news and what the Messiah would do. And we're going to look at just a few of these prophecies and you know, part of reading uh, Matthew and Luke is the boredom of working through the genealogies. And a lot of the Old Testament is genealogies and territories and locations. And I hate reading it. Most of the time I skip it, right? I can't even pronounce the names. But why it's important is because when we're, when we're referring to the Bible, we're not saying it's this mythical story, right, that people have pinned down. We're saying it's actually a historical document. And part of its heresy, maybe that's a word, is there's genealogy and location and time frame to say that these events actually occurred, that there's things that can be verified in Scripture. And one of those things is, as, is how many prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. So part of it is where he would be born in Bethlehem. If you look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it prophesies about this. And that book is dated hundreds of years prior to the dating of Matthew and Luke. And then it talks about him being from the line of Abraham, a descendant of Isaac, a descendant of Jacob, from the tribe of Judah. These are very, these narrow down the population of the earth on who could actually be the Messiah. Does that make sense? I can't claim to be the Messiah because I'm not a child of Abraham. Born of a virgin, that, that's very narrow. Um, then there's some really cool prophecies like he would be called a, a Nazarene. He would give light to, um, to Galilee. He would speak in parables. I actually looked that one up in Psalms. There's two Psalm references to that. Um, and there's four, um, he would spend a season in Egypt, right? So when you look at 
when you look at uh, Mat- Matthew, where that's fulfilled, um, it actually refers back to these Old Testament prophecies, saying that, you see, this isn't just someone we made up as, we didn't pick someone arbitrarily as the Messiah, but he was foretold in all of these ancient literature about who this person would be, and Jesus fulfills them all. I will put up that, those references in our Bible, Renew Bible uh, Facebook group. So there's this gospel that was promised beforehand in Holy Scripture, and then in verse 3 and 4, it breaks down who Jesus is in his nature, that he's fully human, and we see that because he comes from the line of David. He actually, he's birthed out. He takes on human nature. He takes on human flesh. But also that he's fully God. And that's seen in verse 4. That through the spirit of holiness, he was appointed the son of God. And he's able to prove his divinity by resurrecting from the dead. From the dead. There was a cult leader asking his friend, like, man, how do I get more followers? And his friend said, get executed, stay dead, and then come back to life. It's a good way to do it. And I also think, like, there's people who claim to be God on earth, like these cult leaders. I'm like, that's a hard claim to establish, right? Because if I, like, if I, like, shank you in the stomach, will you just be like, and I'm okay, you know? Like, like, I think it's pretty bold to claim to be God. But Jesus proves his claim by coming back from the dead. Now, I want to talk about his humanity, which is uh, summed up as son of David, and his divinity and how it relates to the gospel, okay? The first one in terms of his humanity is that he's able to represent us. And so Jesus, when he dies on the cross, when he dies for our sin, he dies for all of humanity. And he's able to do that because he is human. We call him the second Adam. The first Adam fell in the, in the first garden of Eden. And because we were all his descendants, his sin was passed down to every human on earth which I know from a like, really independent, individualistic mindset, it feels unfair, but that's really how like, this whole thing works. So we are sinners because Adam sinned. But now Jesus comes as a human, and he also represents all of us in his righteousness and paying for our sins on the cross, just like Adam did. And because of his humanity, because he takes on human flesh, he's able to represent all humans before the throne in him forgiving us. I think if he took on like another kind of being, he wouldn't be able to represent us as humans. Secondly, he's able to die, right? If he's God and he didn't take on human flesh, there wouldn't be the ability to die for our sins. And thirdly, he's able to empathize with our weaknesses. He's able to feel the temptation of sin and evil as a, as a human. I don't think he's able to feel that temptation as God. Think about the first temptation of Satan. Make the stone into bread. If he was fully God, he'd be like, and I don't really eat bread, right? But as a man, he felt the hunger of 40 days of fasting, and now it's become tempting for him. And so when we face temptation, we understand, man, we have this high priest who understands our weaknesses, who understands and can empathize with our temptation to the degree in which we feel tempted. We, we have a savior that feels um, what it means to feel lustful and greedy and to wrestle with body image and to go through um, physical pain and social pain, being rejected. And he feels all of it to the greatest extent. 
there's an analogy where like I used to be like big on benching. It was before like CrossFit where other parts of the body matter, you know, and all the guys would just compare like how much do you bench? How many how many plates can you lift? So I got to like almost 300 pounds, right? It would be like two plates and like a 35 or something. And I, I was really proud of myself because I could lift with like the black and white folk. You know, I left the Asian kids behind. Um, and I, I was like, a, you know, one, one of them, uh, which I was very excited about. And uh, now I can lift like two and a half pounds, right? So it's, don't, don't challenge me. I'll lose. Um, anyway, so if you don't, if you can't lift... 300 pounds, you'll never understand what 300 pounds feels like. So if your limit is 150 pounds or 200 pounds, you'll know what 200 pounds of weight feels like. But at 205, you'll collapse under the weight and you'll be like, 205 will feel the same as 400 to you because you'll collapse under that whole weight. And in sin, we collapse under a specific weight of sin. All of us. All of us fail ethically. All of us fail relationally. Some of us fall really early, and some of us fall later. But we all feel sin claps on us where we can't withstand it anymore. But to the degree that we can, um, to the degree that we can resist sin is the degree that we understand temptation. But Jesus resists sin all the way through. Does that make sense? He lifted the full weight of sin when we couldn't. He felt the full weight of temptation when we give in. And so he's able to empathize with our weaknesses, with our temptation to whatever degree that we face it because he was able to face it to its greatest degree. As God, he's able to live a perfect life which allows him to, take the, to be a substitute for our sin. He's worthy of worship. And lastly, he has power over death. So he's the only religious leader that dies and comes back to life. And so with all these other religious leaders, you have to believe what they say is true, but they're not able to prove it, right? They're not able to say, this is how to get, you get to heaven, and I'm going to prove that I have the power to get to heaven, and I have the power to get you to heaven. All you can do is trust that what they're saying is true and that you would hopefully get there. But Jesus is saying, the power is actually inside of me. I possess it. I'm, I've proved my power over death by coming back to life, and therefore I can give you that same power of resurrection and forgiveness, which is part of the gospel. All right, this is the, so that's Jesus, the centerpiece of the gospel. And then we have the gospel itself. We're skipping all the way down to verse 16 and 17, just to kind of keep a cohesive theme here. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, this, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I want us to focus in on how the gospel is the power of God. I mean, God has expended his power in really dramatic ways. Um, he creates the universe in seven days and a few poetic lines. The earth is made, the sun shines, birds fill the air, fish fill the sea. In a, with a flick of the wrist, he parts the Red Sea. But then you think about the Garden of Gethsemane before Jesus goes to the cross. The same God who spoke the universe into being is on his knees. 
His capillary veins are bursting, and he's sweating blood. And for the first time in eternal history, the will of God, the Father, and the will of the Son diverge. And Jesus, for the first time, says, not my will, but your will. He's never had to say that before. Then he walks up to Calvary with the cross on his back. And he dies for our sins. He takes the sin of every person throughout human history and the punishment that we deserve from Hitler to a rapist to me who watches pornography to you. And he takes all of our sin. And I think the nails hurt. Death was scary. But the worst part, the only part that Jesus cries out in is where he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? And in that one line, he experiences the depth of hell because hell is complete absence from the Father. That's really the, the most horrific part of sin is that it can separate, is that the punishment is that it separates us from God. And Jesus experiences the separation on our behalf. But the power part of it is that through Jesus forgiving us of our sins, through him dying the cross for us and taking our sin, we get to become children of God. We're forgiven. And we get this new righteousness that's different, right? There's this, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, a new, a new kind of righteousness. Because when we think about righteousness, it feels kind of angering because righteousness means some some standard that I probably can't reach, right? And when you talk about righteousness, I'm, I just get frustrated because I'm like, okay, there's a standard. I have to perform, and even if I perform, I'll probably fail. And then God gives us a glimpse of his righteousness. He says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. If you hate someone, you've committed murder. So in the eyes of God, his standard of righteousness, we're all adulterers, we're all murderers. We can't reach his standard. We can't reach his bar. But what Jesus does on the cross, the power of the cross, is that he takes this unobtainable bar and he pulls it all the way down so that all of us can step over it. That there's this righteousness that God gives us by faith. This belief that Jesus forgives us. This trust that we want Jesus to be king of our lives. How, I don't think you can lower the bar further than that. There's no action. There's no earning. There's no, you got to be better, quit, quit this, stop this. It's just a decision. I'm going to believe and trust God. And now we have a bar from being completely un unobtainable to Mother Teresa, because she's probably lusted over someone and hated someone somewhere in her life, to being completely obtainable to every person in this room and every person in the world. You don't have to travel anywhere. You don't have to give any money if you're poor. You don't have to live a moral standard to a moral standard if you're a killer. You just are forgiven. And not only are you forgiven, but you're given righteousness. That Jesus is saying, I don't just forgive you of your sin, but I give you the righteousness that I possess. 
I'm trading with you. It's the worst trade possible, right? It'd be like, hey, Jonathan, I'm going to give you my trash, the, not the, even the green bin of recyclables that have some monetary value, but my black bin of, like, rotting food and, like, my poo stains on, you know, on uh, bathroom paper. And I want your house next door. And I want your car. And I want your four surfboards, right? That's, like, the worst trade ever. It's insulting to Jonathan. But what if Jonathan loved me so much? What if he loved me so much that he said, I will take your trash and I will give you my condo? And that's, that's God's love for us. It's completely scandalous and ridiculous. Where he loves us so much, he's like, you can't reach the standard, but I will take all the evil, I will take your punishment, I'll take your sin, I'll take your dirty rags, and I will give you, I will bring you into my family, and I will give you my righteousness. Righteousness that you don't have to earn, that you don't have to perform for. That's, that's love beyond what we could fathom. That's love that we laugh about. But that is the love of God trading in trash for his treasure and him not just doing that with the flick of a wrist but doing that by giving up his son for us and then it says through him when we trust Jesus and ask him to forgive us and we ask him to be part of his family when we walk through him, it's kind of like going through those, that double door, right? This idea of through in the Greek is actually going through. So if, I, if, if I'm here, Jesus is the door, I have to walk through the door. But look at all the things that God gives us. We have received grace and apostleship to call all Gentiles to repentance that comes through faith in his, for his name's sake. And you are among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to all in Rome who are, call, who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That as we receive this gift, we receive grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, getting the opposite of what we do deserve. We deserve punishment for our sin, but God extends love instead, that, that trade between Jonathan and I, I'll bring you trash later. Um, I think about Nina. Like uh, sometimes I'm, I'm really like fussy and um, uh, irritable and and mean. And she knows I'm tired, or she knows I, I I'm empty, or I I did bad in volleyball. And instead of getting mad with me, instead of like um, when I'm mean to her, her responding by being more mean. Sometimes she's kind to me. Sometimes she becomes even more gentle. Sometimes she just says, hey, I know you're upset, but let's just, let me cook you something. <laughs> calm, calm down that hunger. And, um, and then when I get better, she's like, yeah, I play with toddlers a lot, and they throw tantrums, and I just hold. <laughs> so we're going to have two kids at home. We receive grace from the Lord. We receive salvation that because our sins are forgiven, we get to be a part of his family. We get this kind of love 
You know, I, I think if there's anything our generation is hanging our hat on, is trying to find purpose in, it's love. Adele only sings about love. Every single song is about finding love, having love, losing love, right? Every country song I hear is about love or alcohol, but mostly love or loving alcohol. Um, and I think we've purposed, um, as we've let go of God in the society and this bigger purpose, we've said, what's the purpose that we can actually run after? And love, romantic love, has been it. But I'm, I'm married to, one, I think, the per, my soulmate. You know, I didn't believe in that time. I met Nina. And yet, love can still be, this love is still empty and flawed, and I get angry, and sometimes she gets angry back. But God gives us a love that's totally different. God gives us a love that is unconditional, that's not based on our performance or whether we put on makeup that day or whether, we perf- or whether we have money, or whether we are our best selves. God loves us in this deep, incredible, inseparable way. Nothing can separate us from God's love. I think there's something that can separate me from the love of every person I have here, including my parents and Nina. But God gives us a love that is beyond our capacity to do evil. He gives us peace. He, he calls us saints. Those are all the things that we receive from Jesus. And we also receive obedience. That this love and righteousness that we receive, because of our faith, becomes righteousness that we live out. We start to obey Jesus and become more like him. But not to get his love, not to get righteousness, not to get to become a part of his family, but because we are a part of his family, because we've obtained his righteousness, because we are forgiven, we then change. Love changes us. And in our love for Jesus, we obey him and we become different. This last part, it says, um, oh, sorry, I'm skipping a few verses. It's Paul longing to be with the Roman church excited to see the work that they've done. And we'll go through it in our Renew Bible page. Um, This last section I do want to tackle is verse 14. It says, I am obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. You know, I think about how God, how Paul felt this weight um, to preach the gospel. And this, this idea of obligation is a debt or a weight on his shoulders. And he says, I feel this debt, I feel this weight to preach to everyone. Either you're a Greek or a non-Greek, right? So he expands all of humanity. Either you're wise or you're foolish or um, better translated, ex- educated or non-educated. But he feels obligated to everyone. And I wonder if we feel the weight of the gospel for the people around us. Now, if we feel obligated to share with our friend who, instead of finding peace with God, he's just numbing his pain through alcohol or through drugs. I wonder if we feel the weight of the gospel where instead of finding the love of Jesus that is unconditional, this girl gives herself to every guy who gives her attention. 
I wonder if we feel the weight of the gospel when we see someone longing to belong and knowing that God is extend, extending familyness to every person around us. I wonder if we feel that weight on our shoulders. You know, me and Nina were waiting in line for Korean barbecue, and there's this guy kind of street preaching, and it annoys me, and I don't think it's effective. But then there's this other side of me that's like, man, I do wish every person could hear about this God. You know, going to a country concert, going to um, volleyball every week. I'm like, what does it look like for every person to hear the gospel here? Because I see people chasing after all these things that I know is going to fail them. I know it's going to come up empty. I know the part of their heart that um, is, has a gap in it isn't going to be filled. No matter how much alcohol you pour down there, no matter how much you isolate or how, how angry you are or how many women you sleep with or how much money you have, that part of your heart is not going to be filled. But I know what will fill it. And I wonder if we feel the weight of that when we look around us. I wonder if we feel the truth of that when we look at our own hearts. Not only does he say he feels obligated, but he's eager to preach the gospel. And I wonder if that's something that we're eager for. If we're eager for the people around us to hear about Jesus. Um, if we've deeply felt him change our lives and we want other people to hear about him as well. We went to Zion and we went like canyoning and we hiked up Angel's Landing and we have these magnificent pictures. And I think in, a, in the age of social media, like it's not, you didn't really do it unless it's on Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram, right? Like it doesn't count. If you saw a unicorn and you rode on its shoulders around LA, it wouldn't count unless you Snapchatted it. No one, no, no one would feel like you were cool. Right, and so there's this eagerness, whether you're having good food or you're with, or, or you're at a country concert, to share with everyone around you the things you're excited about. Are we eager to share the most important part of our life? This power of God that pulls righteousness down to a place where every person has access to it, where they get belonging and love and purpose. Lastly, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I wonder if the gospel is something we're ashamed of, something that we try to hide sometimes, something that we put in a separate category from our work and our family and our friends, something that we tuck away a little bit when it's unpopular or when it's taboo. Um, I think about the Roman believers at the time who gave up their businesses to, be, to share their faith, who gave up their families, who gave up their very lives. Paul gave up his life to preach the gospel, to be unashamed, that it came at a cost. We had Jabba up here talking about the cost it took to become a Christian to share his faith. And I wonder, in our church, if we would be willing to pay the cost. There's always a cost to sharing. And I wonder if we... Are, feel the obligation and urgency and if we're unashamed of something that's really transformed us you know if the gospel hasn't penetrated our heart yet it's it's okay just discover it just learn more about it find it to be true find it find the forgiveness of god to lift off guilt out of your shoulders to take you away from numbing the pain and memories that you have of doing evil find the gospel to be able to take you into relationship with God so that even when you're alone, 
you believe that you're not. You have someone to talk to, someone who loves you, someone who's there. But if you do experience those things, I pray that we would be a community that is obligated and eager and unashamed. And I look around this church, and I think one of the things that we wanted to build in first is that we be a church that shares our faith. You know, on the college campus, so many of you guys were having spiritual conversations with hundreds of students. When I look across um, to our apartment complex, we've had so many uh, ways to serve people and then to say, hey, this is who Jesus is. When I think about our young adults, one of my favorite moments was last big meeting where we scheduled opportunities where we say, God, fill me with the spirit and open the door for me to talk to my friends about Jesus. And so I pray that that would continue to be who we are, even when we get bigger, even when it's not necessary anymore, even when we're comfortable, it would be part of who we are. That being a part of Renew means experiencing the gospel, understanding it not just intellectually, but in our souls, that, that it changes who we are. And then it would be part of being called to be a messenger, an apostle, as, you, as Paul calls us, right? That we're apostles, and that we would be people who share this good news to the people around us, like he did. God, we love you, and we're so grateful for this great power that you've displayed that cost you the most. Um, Jesus, it cost you your life. It cost you being separated from God for a certain amount of time. Um, Father, it cost you your son. But what a great gift you've been able to give us. Today, we just, we just think about your gospel again, and I hope that it would hit us in a new way, that we would stand surprised and astounded by it, and that we would receive it deeper into our hearts, deeper into the way we live. Um, for those of us who don't know you this morning, I hope that they would just pray the simple prayer God, please forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I want to follow you. I just think about how you pulled this bar of like getting into heaven, you know, um, what it meant to get into this Christian group, and you pulled it all the way down so that we just have to believe in you, that there's this robber getting crucified next to you, and all he says was, Jesus, remember me in paradise. Remember me. And Jesus said, I would. It doesn't get easier than that. Thank you for making this power accessible. And then also thank you for making this power something you've entrusted us with to share with the people around us. We love you. We're grateful for you. In Jesus' name, amen.